0: I love the silence. You know, it's uh, not very often that we just get to sit in silence. And uh, it's just nice to be able to sit in there and just kind of clear your mind. Sometimes it can be awkward. I was trying to have a conversation with one of my daughters last week, and she wasn't responding to me. And so her silence was a little bit awkward. You know, sometimes you walk in and you have expectations that something's going to be happening. And uh, when it's quiet, it can be awkward. And so silence can be awkward, but, uh, you know, sometimes when you need to clear your head, it's just nice to be someplace where there is no noise. I can remember I was probably about 11, 12 years old. I did not have a relationship with Christ, but God had gotten my attention. Um, I was in the desert with my grandma, my grandma Miller on my mom's side. Um, They homesteaded a piece of property out in the desert in uh, Joshua Tree, California. And uh, there's just a little home in the middle of this huge, vast desert. And uh, we used to go out there. You know, quite often, actually, we'd go shooting and kind of walk around. I loved hanging out in the desert. And I can remember one day my grandma and I had gone out for a walk, and she kind of showed me a little trail, and we went up into the mountains. And And I can remember uh, one day just kind of taking off on that trip by myself, and I was sitting out in the middle of the desert. I sat down, and I can remember just the silence. There was a power line that was probably, I don't know, 20 miles off. And it was funny because it got so quiet, I could actually hear the the power line going through the desert. It just struck me as a as a kid um, how neat it could be when we could actually get quiet. And then something happens as we start to grow older, we start to have kids, we start to get jobs, life comes in, and it just gets crowded out, doesn't it? You know, I think one of the reasons I love this story about Moses and the burning bush in chapter 3, which is what we are looking at this morning, was because of just the memories that it evokes for me about what it means to be out in the desert, out in the hills, and to be you know by yourself and in the quiet i it just uh, it just strikes up so many emotions for me and it's got just so many great memories but uh, you know more than just the memories and the silence. this passage in Moses uh, as we look at his life in Exodus chapter three was one of those passages that changed my life because there was a point at which my life had kind of i just kind of run all my relationships into the ground just trying to keep up with stuff and and uh, like I remember coming to this passage and thinking, wow, I wish I could find some quiet like that. And it, that memory clicked in my head. And as I kind of read through it and after I became a believer, the passage became even more meaningful. And so we're in a series. Um, we're finishing that up today. It's Bible stories that changed my life. And I want to share with you a story that changed my life uh, from Exodus chapter 3. And I'm looking forward to our time together. If You brought your Bibles with you. I want to encourage you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. And I want to read uh, those verses with you. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, then you can just listen along as I read. In chapter 3, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he left the flock. He led them to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So he thought to himself, I'm going to go over and check this out, see this strange sight while the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take your sandals off, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his faith. He hid his face because he was afraid. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a land that is good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says down in verse 9, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But, but Moses said to him, Well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, Don't worry, I'll be with you. And this will be a sign that I'll be with you and to all that I have sent you to, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites. And I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am is sending you. Let's open our time together in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for the opportunity we have to come together this morning to um, just to be in silence. Um, God, to be able to experience your presence in our lives. And God, I just thank you for this special time that we could worship you and praise you. And God, I just thank you that your word is living and active in this morning as we come to look at these passages. Looking at the life of Moses, I pray that you would draw us each closer to yourself. God, I know that these passages have changed my life. I'm grateful for that, and I just pray that through our time together this morning, the lessons that we're learning, uh, we can encourage one another and continue to be changed and uh, just be drawn closer to you. And God, we lift our time up to you uh, together. It's for your purpose. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I spend a lot of my time during the week meeting with people. I was talking with somebody recently, and they said, Well, you're a pastor. You just work on Sunday, right? <laughs> I said, Yeah, that's it. <laughs> A lot of times people wonder what you do during the week. I spend a lot of my time, um, you know, just meeting with different people, meeting with leaders and encouraging them in the faith. I spend a lot of my time engaged in our community and having conversations uh, with different people in our community. And so a lot of my job is focused on the relationships with the people around me. And uh, it's interesting because in those conversations, I undoubtedly will have conversations with somebody about wondering if God exists. Is God there? Does God hear me? I think that's a question that sometimes a lot of people will ask. And even if you're a believer, sometimes you wonder, does God really hear me? How come I don't feel his presence in my life? I think that's something that we all look for as more of an ever-increasing sense of God's purpose in our life. At least I do. That's my prayer for myself and for us. This morning, as we look at this passage in Exodus 3, there's three lessons I want to share with you. It comes from Exodus chapter 3. And beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, it opens up with, uh, with Moses' life. And so Moses is tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. He's keeping the uh, flocks of Jethro. The, he's the priest of uh, Midian. And he led the flocks to the west side of the wilderness. And then he came to Horab, the mountain of God. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is up until this point, we really don't know a lot about Moses. In fact, his entire life up to this point is summarized in just 24 verses in Exodus chapter 2. How many of you have seen the movie The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? It's a big movie when I was growing up as a kid, but I don't know how they got four hours out of that movie. A lot of good stuff in there, and so it kind of helps me to identify with Moses and what God's doing and what God's plan is, but there's four hours. There's a lot of embellishment. There's a, there's a lot of things that they think they know about Moses that kind of built into that movie, and a lot of it's you know, probably most accurate. But the one thing that we do know about Moses is that he was, at this point, keeping the flocks. He was, a, he was a, uh, just a shepherd. You know, he was born into a Hebrew family. Chapter two tells us he was born into a Hebrew family, of the tribe of Levi. Um, he was born at a time when the king at that time um, was actually putting to death um, babies because he was afraid of the population explosion of the Egyptians and he, or the of the Hebrews, and he didn't want that to get out of control, so he started putting to death um, the firstborn of these Hebrew um, people, their slaves. And uh, Moses is born into that. Moses' mom does not want him to be killed. So she floats him down the river, at which point um, Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the river, picks him up out of the river, and uh, he's saved and says, now I need a Hebrew woman to come nurse him for me while he's growing up. So Moses' mother actually gets to come and actually raise Moses up unbeknownst to her. But you know what's interesting? In, uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, when Moses had grown older, Uh, She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. And so Moses' mom is raising him up until the point that he is no longer a child. As he gets older, she brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and what? He became her son. So he is now a part of the family of Pharaoh's daughter. And as a result of that lifestyle, he would be afforded many luxuries that his counterparts and his brothers and sisters that were Hebrews wouldn't be afforded. You know, he had the best education possible. He had tutors. He had a great education. He had a great standard of living. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 2, it says that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. I mean, Moses' upbringing was that of privilege. And what happens is uh, he knows something about himself. We also know that at some point he learns that he is a Hebrew. At some point as you move through the chapter we see in chapter 2 that he sees one of the Egyptians beating one of the Hebrew slaves and, and Moses steps in and kills the Egyptian. And so he's aware that this Egyptian is, is beating one of his brothers. And So at some point he comes to understand that he's a Hebrew. Um, as a result of that incident, he's cast out of the family. He loses all of his privilege. And it says that when Pharaoh hears about the story, he wants to kill him. And so Moses flees out into the desert, gives up his entire life of luxury, gives up everything, leaves everything behind, and runs into the desert. And so you see this dramatic change in Moses' life. We'll come to see in a little bit that God's got some great plans for Moses. But it's interesting because Moses goes from somebody to nobody to somebody that does something extraordinary. Dale Moody, uh, pastor of Moody Church, founded Moody uh, uh, Seminary. A very uh, famous pastor, if you've never heard him, he's got some great quotes, but I found this one last week. He said this about Moses. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. He spent the next 40 years learning that he was a nobody, and then he spent a third of his years discovering what God can do with a nobody. <laughs> and so Moses goes through this cycle of life change that is really fascinating. But here in uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, we see that he's typically he's just a, uh, he's just a shepherd. Now, in the New Testament... Shepherds were kind of the bottom rung of the ladder of the Palestinian social circles. You know, to be a shepherd was to be, you know, in the same mix as a tax collector or a dung, a dung sweeper. Somebody just goes up and cleans up after uh, animals. And so in the New Testament, a shepherd really doesn't have a high position. And in the Old Testament, what happened was the 12 tribes migrated to Egypt. And the Egyptians were really good with the agriculture. There was a lot of farmers, but uh, the Egyptians looked down on shepherds too, because when they saw a shepherd coming, that meant here come the flocks. They're going to destroy our crops. And so, to be a shepherd in both the Old and New Testament sometimes can be something that is looked down upon. You know, the, uh, in all cases, we see that you know Moses has just kind of got this position. He's watching the flocks. Uh, he's just kind of a nobody, just an ordinary guy. He's out watching the flocks. What happens is he comes upon this burning bush and so we see in chapter two an angel of the lord appears to him and uh in a flame and a fire comes out of the midst of this bush and he looked and behold it was burning yet it was not consumed and so you know i've got this bush here i, I walk by the front of my house uh, every day i walk by and i see this bush and i thought i thought to my wife i thought you know this would be a great illustration if i could just put some fire gel in there or something and just poof. so just to kind of illustrate what it would have been like to see a bush burning up so i told my wife i said hey could i uh I'd burn your bush. I wasn't expecting her to let me do it. She goes, yeah, I hate that bush. It's ugly. Just go ahead and burn it. I was like, well, shoot. I've already set it up. I was like, "I would have been so cool to put some gas on that thing and video it just to kind of get an image of what it would have been to see like a bush that's just engulfed in flame. Of course, in my video, it would have just kind of been reduced to rubble. And so I told her, I said, you really going to let me burn that? She says, yeah, go ahead. And so now I've just got my, my burning bush here. But you know what? It's interesting because God chooses this bush, just something that's very ordinary God appears in it, and it gets Moses' attention. It says that when he saw the flame of the bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but yet was not consumed. He hasn't done anything at this point. He's just looking at the fact that he sees this bush that's just consumed. You know, And God does this specifically because he wants to get Moses' attention. That would be an attention-getter for me, wouldn't it? I mean, if you walked up and you saw a bush burning and it was just not being consumed, it would be an attention-getter. But you see, God's doing this because he wants to meet with Moses. God wants to meet with us. You know, the first lesson as you look down through Moses' life, and it applies to us as well, is that God wants to meet with you. And there's things that happen in your life that get your attention. Sometimes God has to do something dramatic to get our attention. You know, God got my attention when... Uh, when uh, When my family's situation kind of reached a crisis, God used that in my life. God uses burning bushes. Sometimes he uses tragedy. Sometimes he uses good things. You know, somebody can just come alongside and and, uh, care about you or want to pray for you. But God uses different events, different people in your life because he wants to get your attention. He wants to meet with you. Do you believe that? You know, God wants to talk with you, to have a relationship with you. Is that something that you believe? You know, I was talking to somebody last week, and they said, I don't know. I'm not sure if a God even exists. You know, in our culture, there's an idea that there is a God, but that you can't know him. You know, there's an idea in our culture that... um, that that there's a God that exists, but he's just looking down, but you can't have a relationship with him. And then there's a lot of different conversations about different gods. And when you start having conversations with God about about people, it gets really confusing when you're talking to, to people. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Sometimes people come walking into the church. It's the first or second time. They really haven't thought about who God is. And so that's a really valid question. Do you believe this morning that God wants to meet and have a relationship with you personally? Or do you think it's just for the pastoral staff? You think it's just for the ministry leaders? You think it's just for people that come to church every week? Do you believe that God wants to have a relationship and to meet with you personally? He does. God wants a relationship with us. And he demonstrates us in this that he sent his son. You know, one of the things I love about John 316 is that this love applies to everyone. God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That verse focuses on us, on the security of who Christ is. But I want to talk about that love that God has for the world. Because, you know, it's interesting. I've just got four kids. And, um, I love all of my kids equally. Um, there was just two people in my family. I had my, me and my sister. And we were constantly joking each other about, Mom loves you best, love loves you best. And so in my circles, I've got four kids. And it's like, you know, which one, every kid will ask, well, which one of us do you love the most? You know, and that's just two or four. You know, when this country was founded in 1776, there, was only, there wasn't even a billion people on the planet. Today, I, it was six billion. At one point, I looked. I think it's up to seven, almost eight right now. The population's exploding. Can God love me? There's eight billion people on the earth. Does he really love me personally? The fact that God can love you and love you and love you and love you and love me in a personal basis is just astounding. And it's hard for us to understand. But you need to know that even if you don't feel special, you are. You have been created with a plan and a purpose. There are no accidents in life. God loves you as evidenced by the fact that you're here. God wants a relationship with you. God loves every single person that's been created in the earth. And he demonstrated that by sending his son to die a criminal's death for us on the cross. In 1 John 4, verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. Love is in the fact that even if you don't feel it, even if you don't know it, God loves you anyway. God wants a relationship with you. And that is a foundational lesson because when somebody hears for the first time God loves you, and wants a relationship with you, 75% of the people that you tell that to will not be able to get their mind around the fact that God loves them and wants a relationship with them. Sometimes people walk into this church on a Sunday morning just kind of looking around and they hear that God loves them, sometimes it's the first time. I was A couple of years ago, um, I was doing a message and said something about the fact this message uh, on this passage, talking about the fact that God loves you and has a plan for you. And I can remember after the service, a guy walked up and said, I have never had anybody tell me that before. I mean, how can, how can you be going in and out of church? How can you be around other Christ followers and not know that God loves you? And you need to know God loves you and he does want to meet with you. and He does have a plan for you. And so the first lesson we see with Moses, and sometimes he goes to great lengths he, to, to get somebody's attention if we will just look and see. You know, Moses had a relationship with God, but at the beginning, he didn't. He was far off from God. You know, God used a burning bush to call him into a relationship with himself to get his attention. But here's the thing about God's wanting to meet with us. The meeting is up to you in terms of whether or not it happens. God loves you, and God wants to meet with you. God wants a relationship with you, but the decision is completely yours. Is whether or not that relationship is going to happen, whether or not that meeting is going to happen. God wants a relationship with you, but whether or not it happens is up to you. It's your choice. You know, I have uh, two dogs. I have uh, two Springers, and uh, I've actually got a Maltese. Uh, it's my daughter's. It's kind of coming into the house now. So now I've got three dogs. And, uh, so I've got three dogs in the house. And so last week I was kind of working with them, and um, I taught my dogs to whistle. I put some peanut butter on the lips and, you know, kind of worked around for a little bit. And uh, I taught my dogs to whistle last week. Isn't that amazing? You'd like to see that, wouldn't you? They don't do it for some reason. I don't know why. I'm a great teacher. I mean, I did everything I could and I taught them to whistle. They just wouldn't do it. You know, up until this point, knowing that God loves you is just knowledge. Like teaching a dog to whistle. Knowing God loves you is just information. We have to internalize that. We have to apply that. We have to do something with that information. God wants to meet with us, but the meeting is strictly up to us. Moses sees this burning bush in verse 3 and 4. He said, I'm going to turn aside to go see this great sight. Why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, he called... To Moses, out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. You see, up until this point, Moses has just seen the burning bush. You know, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, and he looked, and he saw it. But then in verse 3, he says, I'm going to turn aside and go see this great thing. He stopped what he was doing, and I love the imagery of that word, turned aside. Moses was with the flocks. It would be like if if I was at my job working and I'm, I'm doing what I need to do, and all of a sudden I stopped working and I went over here to go see what was happening over here. I can see something, but that doesn't mean I'm going to respond to it, right? Moses, not only did he see it, but he turned aside from what he was doing to go investigate this. And this is why, this is so important. This is why you're here today. This is the this is the summation of the message. It's not just enough to know. You have to respond and you have to turn aside. We have so many things in our lives that just choke us out. It's not enough just to be in church. You need to let God into your life. It's not enough to know that God wants a relationship. There's a, there's a response. You know, Jesus died for us to demonstrate that God wants to have a relationship with out of his love. But John writes this in chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who receive him who believed in his name, he gives the right to become children of God who were born not of, not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. We need to receive and accept Christ into our life. It's not enough to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We need to ask him into our life to take control. That's a response that, that we need to have. God loves us but we have to make time for him. Jesus died for us, but we have to accept him. And it's at that point that he accepts us that we get to become his children. There's a difference from the love that God has from us and what it means to be called a child of God. And we want to help people to become children of God. We want to help people understand what Christ accomplished for them. We want them to be able to receive and ask him to come into their life, not of the flesh or of the will of man. And there's a lot of flesh and the will of man happening right now. 'Cause there are people that will walk into the church and they think they're good just because they went to church. For for thirty two years, I was walking into church and walking out of church thinking I was okay with God because I'm a good person. I go to church. I'm not as bad as this guy. You know, if you look while you know, look around. I mean we compare each other. It's not enough to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We have to accept him. We cannot live by the will of the flesh or the will of man. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. We have to receive Christ into our life. And it's at that point that the relationship begins to flourish. Like Moses, we need to turn aside from things of this world and focus our minds on him. I think there's a a conception that, well, we don't need God. We don't need church. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to be obedient. There are so many things that choke out our relationship with God. We're constantly choked out by our jobs, by the things of this world, by the kids, by just there's so many things that work against us. They just choke out our lives. And so it's difficult. I've talked to people that they're right on their, they want to make a decision about how to have a relationship with Christ, but there's there's something that chokes that decision out. Or I talk to people, they'll make a decision, they'll say, Great, would you like to get baptized or would you like to join a small group? And there's something that chokes that out. It was constantly things that are choking us out. I can be a believer for 20 years and walk into a church and and still think, like, just submitting to leadership can be something that would choke me out. It was constantly things that are choking us out. Whether we're coming into a relationship with Christ or whether we have one, we're constantly being choked out by things of this world. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the peril parable of the seeds in the soil. He said, my word's going to go out. People are going to accept me. But sometimes, seeds going to fall among the thorns. And the thorns grow up with it. And they choke it out. It is so easy to get choked out. And as, as Christ followers, we're, we're in this world. We're not supposed to be of it. But there are things that are choking us out. That's one of the things I love about Sunday morning. It's an opportunity for me to put aside, mowing my grass, sleeping in. I get to put those things aside that I'd like to be doing. I get to come in and I get to focus on who God is. I love Sunday morning. But you know what else is interesting is this, what happens the other six days? What happens when you walk out this door? You know, what happens when you just walk out into the world? I mean, we're constantly being choked out. There are so many things that compete for our time. It is absolutely overwhelming. Trying to make a living paying bills. You know, our jobs are great, but jobs can be a distraction. You know, trying to find, have fun and find pleasures in this life. You know, God created joy, and there's nothing wrong with pleasures, but they can be a distraction. Relationships are important, but relationships can be uh, a distraction. I don't know who needs 3,000 friends. I've got, I've got, uh, on Facebook, I got friended from somebody that I knew 40 years ago. I like, hey, wanna hang out? Uh, no. <laughs> Man, there's just so much stuff that chokes us out. It is really, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, we, have, uh, uh, we live in times where there's so much information. Information can choke you out. I want to I know. I want to be on top of it. So information flow right now is the name of the game. It used to be a point where getting information was something that made you marketable. You know, if I knew something, then I brought some value. Value today is being able to filter things out. <laughs> there's just too much information out there. You've got a uh, white piece of paper in your uh, program. I invite you to take that out. Just a plain piece of white paper. And um, I've done this with uh, our men's ministry. um, And I I I don't think I've done it in a larger group setting. But, uh, you know, we live in times when information is just exponential. The demands for our time are exponential. So take that piece of paper out and then uh, see how many times you can fold it. How many times can you fold that white piece of paper? Somebody fold it and just shout out a number what you got when it gets full. When you can't fold it anymore. One, two, three. <laughs> somebody hit a limit yet? So somebody got six? Anybody get more than six? If it was a perfect square, you might be able to get Seven. I'd uh, start with a newspaper, start with 8 and a half by 11s. Whatever piece of paper you start with, the most that you can ever fold a piece of paper is seven times before it reaches its capacity to be able to fold it, fold it again. And so you start with a piece of paper, typically they're, you know, tenths of a thousandth of an inch thick. Fold it once, point two eight, point five six, eight. 0.56, 8. If you fold it six times, it's probably, you know, three-quarters of an inch thick. If you could fold it again to seven, get 1.9. If you could fold it ten times... It would be almost a foot thick. It's just simple math. This is just simple math. There's no trick to it, nothing to it. It's just being extrapolated. If you could fold it another 22 times, it's a foot thick at 10, and then a foot becomes 2, 2 becomes 4, 4 becomes 9.56, 1976, when you get to the 22nd fold, you are almost a mile thick. If you could fold a piece of paper 22 times, it would be a mile thick. And here's the kicker. If you could fold it another 20 times, it would be as thick as the distance from the surface of the earth to the moon. If you could fold a piece of paper 40 times, it would be as thick as the distance between the earth and the moon. 238,000 miles. 242,000 miles. It actually be further than that. That is the power of exponentials. And so we're in an age right now where information is growing exponentially. And so a 100 years ago, (laughs) the people that knew something were really valuable. 1776, our country wasn't even a nation. There wasn't even a billion people. And so doctors, lawyers, those people were educated. They just they knew everything. They were really valuable. You know, just 200 years later, today's age, We've got almost 9 billion people on the planet, and information has grown exponentially. I can pick up my cell phone and, in a matter of seconds, answer any question. Now, there's the, I run the risk of not being able to answer it correctly <laughs> because there are people out there that have bad information out there. But if you filter it through, you have access to more information today than the accumulated knowledge of information throughout history. There's just so much to know. There's so much to know, and it chokes you out because you can't know everybody. I don't want to know what's going on with 1,200 people that I know in the past. I, my brain does not have the capacity to do that. We don't have the capacity to handle and process this kind of information, and we're desensitized to embracing silence because we're afraid we're going to mess out something. Just the ability to still your mind. If you just got quiet for a minute, you know, something's going to pop into your head. Think about how many things pop into your head when you're just trying to still your mind. We are desensitized to the quiet and it's killing our relationship with God. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. God called him in 1 Kings. He had an important, relation, an important mission for him. And God calls him and he says, look, go out and stand on the mountain before God and behold, the Lord's going to pass by. And when he does a great Strong wind tore through the mountains and broke through the pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in that. He called him. He said, go stand there. This great event happens. But notice the Lord was not in that. After the wind, an earthquake came. But the Lord was not in that earthquake. Moving to verse 12. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came the sound of a low whisper, at which point he was able to engage in his relationship, and his conversation with God. Could you hear God in a whisper? I mean, God uses a variety of things to get our attention. Sometimes it's not a burning bush or something tragic or some big event. Sometimes it's just simply in the quietness and the stillness of our hearts that God wants to meet us there. Are you able to do that? Can you hear God in a whisper? God wants to meet with you. This meeting is up to you. You get to set that. And I guarantee you, when you get to that place, it will transform and change your life. God wants to meet with you. The meeting's up to you. And that meeting will transform and change your life. Guaranteed. You might not feel special, but you are. God takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. A bush with God in it is extraordinary. You know, just a plain old dirt. What God is extraordinary. In Exodus 3 5, God said, Don't come near, take your sandals off your feet. The place that you are standing is holy ground. It's just dirt. It's holy. When I came in this morning, was, I, I loved the mornings. All of this quiet. I'm walking through here. I couldn't hear a sound. I could hear the air conditioner a little bit. I'm looking around thinking chair, mic, you know, this is just four walls in a building, right? It's just the building. This is not the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. This is a building. And I walked through here and I was, you know, it was amazed. we have responsibility for it. We have to care for it. We've got weeds out there. I'm thinking, oh man, we gotta pick the weeds, we've got to fix this, we gotta fix that. I mean it's a building. We have to be entrusted to it. But without the presence of God in it, it's just a building. And who needs a building? You got a building buildings all over the place. Why build another building? There's buildings everywhere. But there's something happens when you walk in here and we start singing to God and we open up his word, this becomes a holy, sacred place. It's not the building. It's not the chairs. It's the fact that we've come here to worship a God that loves us and wants a relationship with us, and it is changed. It's changed just like the ground was changed. Don't come any nearer. You are standing on holy ground. Holy means to be. it's special. It's set apart for God's purposes, and that's what this is. This is a holy space. Because we have set aside this time to focus our eyes on God, and that makes it holy. And when you allow God into your life, into a relationship with him, you become holy. You are set apart for a plan and a purpose. God takes an ordinary guy and makes him extraordinary. He does this to Moses in verse 10. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I've got a great plan for you. You have... Come to me, you've received me, we have a relationship, I've got a great plan for you. And it's an extraordinary plan. Moses would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. A million people would walk out into the promised land. That was a huge plan. You know, when, when you make yourself available, when you understand that God loves you, that he wants a relationship with you, and you make yourself available for that, and when you accept that, God's going to do amazing things in your life. I love this passage. 1 Peter two nine. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. This is Peter speaking to the believers. You're holy not because of anything in you. Not because you're good. Not because you're here. Not because of anything. But the fact that you have been chosen and you have a relationship with God. That makes you a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A chosen people. For what? for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of of, of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. You have been bought at a price. You are not your own. God has a plan and a purpose for us. And when we come into a relationship, when we understand he loves us, and when we receive that and we accept that, God does something in our lives that changes us and makes us new. It's life transforming. A person that makes a faith commitment and who steps out in obedience should have a changed life. Not because of anything that they're doing, but because of what God's doing in them. And we need to make sure that we're not doing anything to choke out what God wants us to do. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, I'm going to leave you, but in that day you're going to know my, uh, I, that, that I am in my Father and you are in me and I in you. Jesus is in the Father and we are in him and he's in us. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. He is the one who loves me, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. He's going to have a sense of my presence in his life. And I love this question. Judas spirit, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? Why does everybody not know this great news? That's a great question, isn't it? How come everybody doesn't know? To which Jesus replies, I told you, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and will come to him and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me and does not keep my words is not going to experience that. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And so it's through our obedience to God's word. It's through living that out. It's in our relationship with him. God speaks to us through his word. When you pick up the Bible and you start reading it, that is God speaking to you. If you want to hear God speak to you, you have to read scripture. Jesus is the Word. The Word became life and it dwelt in us and lives among us. We read God's Word and it transforms us. The Bible says that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the marrow. Scripture says so many great things about itself, but one thing it does say is that it's life-transforming. And when you come to the point that you understand your need for a relationship with Christ and you receive that, then you are changed. You're made new. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. We're changed. We've been set apart for God's purposes and for his plan. This morning, you might be sitting there and you might be thinking, well, I'm not sure if I have a relationship with Christ. It's not a, I think so. If you can't say I do, then you might not. (laughs) God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. You have to receive that. So how do you do that? These words don't get anybody into heaven, but if a heart is right, if somebody realizes that their life is broken, if they recognize that they've been living for their own purposes, selfishly, in imperfection, in, in and that you need God in your life, then you can ask him to come into your life. If you believe that Christ came to die and to live, to die, and to be raised from the dead and rescue you for our sins, if that's something you believe, then you can thank God for that. You can ask for forgiveness. I turn from living life my way and I put my trust in you and I ask you to come into my life you believe that Jesus is the Lord and it's your desire to follow him and to be obedient to his word, then if that is something that is on your heart this morning and you've never prayed and asked Christ into your life and you want to receive that today, then you can pray that prayer. It's that simple. It's just believing it and asking Christ to come in. And so I want to give you a few moments just to kind of reflect on that. If you've never asked Christ to come into your life, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you've always wondered does well, there a God exist? Does he have a plan for me? You know, how do I have a relationship with him? It's through his son, and you can ask him to come into your life this morning. So I'll give you a moment of silence just to pray that in your heart this morning. good news is that you pray that one time. I grew up thinking I used to, get got exposed to, well, if I mess up, I have to keep praying that. You know, when you ask Christ into your life, you're made new, you're sealed, you belong to him. You pray that once, that's being justified before God. But this process of growing Christ-like is something that every believer has to work with. You know, something that I pray on a routine basis is that I might know God in an ever-increasing way. And so there's a second prayer here. If you can back that up for me. The second prayer. Could you get that for me, Kyle? I know that I'm saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. I know where I'm going. I know that I am His workmanship, that I have been created in Christ Jesus to good, good works, which God has prepared beforehand, that I should walk in them. I know this world is full of distractions and that it keeps me from the work that God has for me. And so if you're a believer this morning, I want to ask you, Would you pray that God would protect you from distractions? If you've been distracted, you can ask forgiveness for that. Forgive me for the times that I've been distracted and haven't done what you have prepared in advance for me to do. Strengthen my faith so that I can be an ever-increasing better witness for you. That's a great prayer. And so if you're a believer, asking God to reveal himself to you more is a great prayer. To not let you be distracted is a great prayer. That you would be a better witness for him is a great prayer because that's what you've been created for is to be a witness to other people. And so that's a great prayer. So if you have a relationship with Christ, I'll invite you to pray that with me this morning. Received a uh, program on the way in, there was a welcome slip attached. On the back side of that, there was a place for you to share your name, uh, your contact information. On the back of that was a place for you to uh, indicate if you are interested in having a relationship with Christ. And so if you prayed that first prayer, if uh, you asked Christ to come into your life and take control, there's a place for you at the back just to indicate um, a relationship with Christ. I'd love to be able to follow up with you and talk with you about that. If you already have a relationship with Christ and um, you prayed for God to reveal himself to you more, um, that's a great prayer. I want you to share that with me as well. If you've never had an opportunity to be baptized, that is one of the first steps of obedience. We have a baptism service coming up on the 13th. So if you have a relationship with Christ and you've never had an opportunity to be baptized, I'd love to talk with you about that. If you're not quite sure where to start, we have a starting point class coming up on August the 13th. Um, But I want to help you to be able to experience more of what God has for you. I'm so glad that you were with us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I just want to thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. I thank you for the hope that we do have in Christ. I thank you for your word that's life-transforming. God, I thank you for Moses and for his life and for his obedience and for the things that we can learn from his word. And uh, God, thank you for the chance that we could be here this morning. God, this is a holy place. And I just thank you for uh, your presence here and in our lives. God, I pray that you would continue to draw us closer to yourself. We look forward to the great things that you're going to do in and through us through this ministry and our lives together.